This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome, friends, as we unveil the program for Sunday, April the 18th. My word. The inexorable march of time, indeed. We are uh, going to rattle some cages tonight, let me tell you. Uh, For those of you who have long suspected that uh, professional sports is nothing more than a a distraction, and we talk a lot about that sort of thing here on The Conspiracy Show, the the shiny amulet to uh, distract we magpies from the big picture, I think tonight's show is going to cement that. Uh, We're going to talk about the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Dan, we might even want to have that disclaimer ready because this is going to be uh, inflammatory. Before we get to that, though, let me uh, just give you some uh, heads up uh, what's coming up on the program. Next week, the 25th of April, every year at at about this time, uh, Stephen Bassett, arguably the world's most prominent UFO disclosure advocate, organizes and hosts the X Conference down in Washington at the National Press Club. That's coming up May 7th, 8th, and 9th. So in advance of that, Stephen will be on the program next Sunday, the 25th. And in addition, UFO researcher, investigative journalist Paula Harris will be with us. And I'll be heading down to the X Conference... Uh, May 7th, 8th, and 9th. We're going to be uh, getting into the documentary business. And our first documentary is going to be on the UFO disclosure movement. 
I'm also pleased to announce that uh, one of my students from the Talk the Talk, talk radio, talk television uh, program that I'm teaching and is now in its second week at the Toronto Media and Film College, we'll just call him Frank, has, um, has popped in to, to, to see how we do things here in Radio Land, and we're uh, happy to have him bo- aboard. Uh, what else can I tell you? Well, of course, the website, richardserrett.com, your, your portal to The Conspiracy Show. richardserrett.com. All the upcoming show information is there, your past show audio archive. There's a book and DVD club, a top-secret document page, and uh, also a weekly online poll. We've had this one up actually for a couple of weeks. Is there a conspiracy to suppress cancer cures? You can uh, vote, register your vote, again, at richardserrett.com. All right, on to the program. I was an avid uh, uh, baseball fan uh, for many years. I would listen religiously to every uh, uh, ball game on the radio that I could. And uh, my idea of relaxing was to pour over the box scores in the next day's newspaper. But I soon realized that uh, with all of these players uh, and, and with free agency changing uh, uniform and the uh, there'd be a wholesale change, whether it's uh, baseball or hockey, it was just impossible to follow the movement of players anymore. And then I realized, what am I doing? I'm rooting for a jersey. That's all I'm doing. This uh, edition of, uh, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, you know, in, in two or three years, they'll have moved on. They'll all be with different uh, teams. So what am I rooting for? I'm rooting for a jersey. And I just, after I, that realization struck me, I just, I lost the, uh, the ardor for the game. Brian Tui is uh, the author of The Fix Is In, The Showbiz Manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and uh, NASCAR. And uh, we're happy to have him here on The Conspiracy Show. Welcome, Brian. Good evening. Good evening to you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. You know, uh, one of the things that struck me when, I'm, uh, when, I, uh, when I received the book in the, uh, in the mail, there's not a lot of information about you. Are you deliberately sort of keeping a low profile? Because I, I can imagine I would do the same thing if I were you having written this book. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going out of my way to keep a low profile, no. But no. I'm not really looking forward to the NFL or any mafia guys coming knocking on my door either. This is a, a, a multi-billion dollar uh, industry, professional sports. And uh, as I said, this is going to rattle a lot of cages. What, what was the tipping point for you? I'm, I'm guessing that you started out as a, as a huge sports fan and then one day, did you have an aha moment? To a degree, yeah. I, what I, my, for myself... I was a lifelong sports fan, and then I started realizing that the sports leagues were lying to me, in essence. They were telling me, you know, everything was okay, but yet they were employing drug users and people who gambled and criminals. And I started realizing that probably if they're lying to me about everything else, they were likely lying to me about the games themselves because that's what they sell is the game. And once I realized that and started digging into it, that's, yeah, when I really had that aha moment and said, you know, things are not as they appear here. Well, you go so far as to suggest that uh, all professional sports are fixed. Now, yeah. what little I know of the professional sporting world, I would, I, I'm gathering that it's a closed club. It's a, it's a, it's a big boys network, and uh, they don't welcome outsiders. 
Uh, we've certainly w- witnessed that in the NHL where certain uh, would-be owners have tried to, uh, you know, buy their way into the club. But how were, we, were you able to gain access and, and get this kind of information? Well, really, I didn't get much inside information because it is such a closed club. I mean, there's not like a, you know, there's the Freedom of Information Act for, you know, the government, but there's no such thing for the sports leagues. You cannot get to their inner files, and you cannot really discover what their supposed investigations revealed when guys are arrested or are busted for drugs and these sort of things. So what I started doing is I called together what information I could find from all different sources, books, articles, websites, all that sort of thing, and started drawing the big picture. And for me, the big picture, what it really boils down to for professional sports leagues is that they need television ratings and the revenue that the networks pay them to operate. Like the NFL would not exist as we know it today without the $6 billion a year they make from the TV networks each season. Correct. So once I started realizing that ratings were more important than the fans showing up each week to see the games live, then I was on to something. And I started looking at the fact that, you know, more often than not, the storylines that these leagues would create seem to go on much longer than they should. And that's when I said, all right, I think here's what we have, is we have basically a showbiz entertainment industry. When you say the storyline is going on longer than it should, are you talking to you know some of these legendary players like Michael Jordan, for example? He would be one, yeah, where you know he had his gambling issues that they like to hide underneath the rug and then promote him as something that he really was not. But I'd also say something like the uh, New Orleans Saints, like in 2006 after, they, um, after the city was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina, the team was just decimated. And then the year after the hurricane, they rebuilt the Superdome, and suddenly the Saints became a playoff contention team. And In other words, that, that, that storyline was, was uh, manufactured. How right. do they do that? How can you control uh, 55 players or, or, or whatever it is uh, per, per team? How can you control the outcome of a game? Well, you don't need to get everybody on the team. You don't need to get the winning team at all, in fact. You only need to get the guys who are going to lose. The winning team, they can just play and do their thing, and if you get you know, one or two guys on the losing team or the team that you want to lose to go along with your wishes, you could make any game bend. I mean, if you took a, like a football team, for example, really you could get away with having one offensive lineman who, if you know, he didn't hold his block correctly or if he you know, got a holding penalty or did this or the other thing, he could alter the game just all by himself and you would never notice. It's like getting a boxer to take a dive. Yeah, but I think a, a way to control players comes from, like, the league's ability, the way they control their drug testing program. I mean, the drug testing program for, like, a league like the NFL, again, they control every aspect of it. They control what's banned. They control when the samples are taken. They control the testing. They get the results themselves, and then they issue the punishment. Well, it would be very easily, easy for the league to take that result knowing that a player tests positive, something they do not have to make public, and approach a player and say, hey, you tested positive for you know, this steroid or this drug. We could do one of two things here. We could either release it to the public, and you could face the consequences, or perhaps you could drop a game for us. Blackmail, like in other words. 
Yeah. These are these are incredibly serious allegations, uh, uh, Brian. How do you protect yourself from a lawsuit? Well, everything that I put in the book is true. There's nothing in the book, and the fix is in. There's really nothing in the book that I've made up. These are all true facts. These are all sourced facts. It's just my conclusions that you might question, but you can't question how I got to my conclusion at all. All right. So, in other words, I mean, it, it's no secret uh, that uh, if you look down the uh, the roster of a lot of NFL teams, they're filled with people with criminal records, uh, uh, sometimes violent uh, criminal records. So is, is, is that done by design, that if you have blackmailable t- people on the team, then they can be killed? Is that the idea? I believe that's one of the reasons why a lot of these guys get not just a second chance, but a third chance, a fourth chance, a fifth chance, yeah. And they keep them around because they can keep them under their thumb. And if Team A, uh, let's say the uh, one of the defensive tackles or uh, the entire defensive line, uh, they have criminal records, they're blackmailable, and uh, they're supposed to, uh, you know, to take a dive, uh, so that team the other team will will be victorious. Who actually approaches these players and says, you know, there'll be no uh, no blitzing the quarterback tonight? That's a good question. I'm not 100% sure on who may be doing it, but there's a lot of people that could do it. One of the things that happens in basketball, for example, it seems like at the end of a lot of seasons, is that teams with really bad records, um, what they call tank games, they lose games on purpose because the worse your record is, the better chance you have at getting the number one draft pick in the NBA. Right. And if a team is going to tank a game, chances are the person who's telling them to tank the game is not the players themselves, and it's not the coach. It's either the general manager or more likely the owner who's tapping somebody and saying, hey, we need to drop these couple of games because we want to get that better draft pick. And a lot of sports reporters would agree that that happens, that teams do indeed tank games. And my problem is I don't know how sports reporters can go along with that and not call the league out on them more because if you can take a game for one reason, to me it means you can tank a game for any reason. Brian Tui, author of The Fixes in the Showbiz Manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Phone lines available to you for questions and comments. Surely you must have some. 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. Loose lips sink ships. Sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. How much of your life have you spent watching televised sports, attending games, talking about sports, listening to sports radio, checking websites for updated scores? How many nights have you stayed awake wondering how your team blew that huge lead? What if all that time, emotion, and money has been wasted on a lie? What if the action on the field isn't what it appears to be? What if you and millions like you have been duped, outright lied to, by those franchises you hold so dear to your heart, all in the name of making an easy buck? Brian Tui is uh, with us. The book is The Fix Is In, and the website is www.thefixisin.com. 
www.thebookshop.net. One of the interesting things that uh, I, I learned from the book, Brian, and I think many people would be uh, surprised to learn as well, is most professional sports leagues have their own sort of internal intelligence unit, and, uh, and these, are, these are made up of former CIA and FBI. Why do they need that? To me, the reason they need it is to keep as many wrongdoings, criminal behavior, as quiet as they possibly can. And I think the only reason you see more um, players like Ben Roethlisberger get in trouble and get more press coverage is because their little secret police force doesn't have the control they used to have because of things like, you know, Blackberries and, you know, camera phones and those sorts of things. So they kind of lost their grip on the control over their players and the media around them and that those types of secrets are starting to get out. We mentioned uh, uh, Michael Jordan a little bit earlier, and uh, I don't think there's much argument. I mean, I think he's considered the greatest basketball player uh, of all time, certainly dominated the sports. Was it six NBA titles? Yep. So, but uh, you you bring to light a a very different uh, version uh, of events, and um, one can't help but think that this will, you know, taint the legend of, of, of Michael Jordan. Let's let's talk about the real Michael Jordan as you portray him in the book. Who was he? Who I mean, is he? Well, Michael Jordan is a fabrication. He was put together. He was a great basketball player, but he became more than the he became more than just a basketball player. He became the NBA, and then he also became the face of you know McDonald's and of Nike and of Chevrolet and whatever else he represented. But Behind the scenes, Jordan, even I think before his college days, had a gambling problem. I mean, he was an ultra-competitive guy, and gambling something that competitive people like to do. And I believe that his gambling got so out of control that he was betting on anything and everything. I mean, there's books that, about Jordan, and it details how he'd you know, try to bet on games of horse, and he'd bet on video games, and he'd bet on ping pong, and he played cards. He'd do this, that, and the other thing, gambling. And then he got in trouble because he owed a gambler for a golf game that he lost. And suddenly it all became public that this guy had a gambling issue, and suddenly the league and everything that Jordan stood for was threatened. Now, he was he, the, one of the problems, as I understand it, was that he was, uh, I mean, he's, he, he did play poker with his teammates, but when he got into trouble is when he started mixing company with some rather undesirables. We're talking uh, gangsters. Yeah, he was. Some of the guys he was playing golf with and betting on these golf games included people who were drug dealers. This is all and, a matter of public record. Yeah, right. I mean it's undeniable that he did that. The question is, is how far did his gambling really go? Some people believe, and I happen to be one of those people who believe it, was that he was gambling on sports and possibly even gambling on basketball. Hard and to believe, after, though. I mean, he he seemed uh, on the surface to be such a competitor. Uh, I just find it. I, this is why I always had trouble believing that, that for example, Pete Rose would ever have a, a, a betted against you know his own team. Uh, he just uh, such a competitor that that to me just didn't make sense. Are you you're well, not are you suggesting that Jordan bet against the Bulls? No, not not at all. I don't know one way or the other if he even bet on basketball for certain. I believe he did, but I can't prove that he did. But but um, betting on on any professional sports for a professional athlete is an unwritten rule. You just don't do that. You're not supposed to. Now, some leagues do allow it, like the NHL does allow players to gamble on other sports, just not the NHL. Right. I believe the 
NBA has the same type of rule. But after the Pete Rose thing blew up just a few years earlier than the Michael Jordan thing, the NBA had to act, I believe, and clamp them down as much as they could. And that's why I, I believe that his first retirement was just a lie. I uh, believe that he didn't retire, but that he went um, basically to get gambling help. This was in ninety at the end of the ninety three series, and they had just won their the Bulls had just won their what third consecutive NBA title. Yes, and Michael Jordan, in a very uh, sort of perfunctory fashion, without the 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 tears that we normally see at just about every single reti- retirement announcement in the history of professional sports, he just said, "That's it. I've had enough. I'm no longer into the game." And so you're saying that he was what forced out? I think it was probably yeah. To some degree, forced out, but kind of a mutual agreement that they got together. Uh, Jordan, Commissioner David Stern, maybe even the Bulls owner Jerry Reinsdorf, and I said, you know, Michael, you're getting a lot of control. We got a lot of bad publicity with these golf gambling things. We need you to calm down and settle down and get you know your life back under control. And for some reason, you know, that was the same time when Jordan suddenly decided, well, I want to be a professional baseball player. Which coincident? So that yeah. the team he went to play for was owned by the same guy who owned the Chicago Bulls. So it all kind of worked out nice that he could still kind of stay in the limelight, which he seems to love, but perhaps could get counseling that he may have needed. Well, that's interesting. I re- I remember the um, the was it the Durham Bulls he was playing for? It was the minor league affiliate for the Chicago White Sox? No, it was the Birmingham Barons. Birmingham Barons. But again, as you point out, owned by the same. A guy that owned the Chicago Bulls, and and I mean, because yeah, it was a Chicago White Sox affiliate, right? So the the uh, the the Bulls owner Reindorf, Reinsdorf, Reinsdorf must have just uh, been crying in his beer that uh, his franchise, in essence, uh, you know, had to uh, had to leave the game so he could at least what he loses at the gate for the Bulls game, he can now, I guess. Uh, attract, uh, you know, f- far more attendance and, and um, you know, licensing fees for sports memorabilia by, by putting his star player on his baseball team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could sell the Birmingham Barons jerseys, you know, and Jordan could stay affiliated with Nike because he could wear Nike shoes and he could still do his McDonald's and his Chevrolet ads and all that stuff. But what a horrible misadventure that, that was. What a horrible misadventure that was. He was not a good baseball player. Actually, I mean, in a way, he wasn't too bad, but I mean, he's obviously athletic. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, no. He was, there was no way he was ever going to play professional baseball, at least in the major leagues. So he was there just putting in his time, staying in shape, staying, uh, keeping a, a lower profile, but still uh, doing his endorsements while he sought uh, help for his gambling problem. That's what I believe was going on, yeah. Because it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, everything he said in his retirement statement, like he wanted to spend more time with his family, and that sort of thing. He all of that he turned his back on immediately. As soon as that retirement statement, like you said, there was no tears in it. As soon as he made his retirement statement, everything he said about it, he turned his back on and went right back to doing it. You um, emphasized one thing in particular. He said in his retirement speech uh, that nobody else seemed to pick up on, and that was when asked. Uh, actually, it was during the the Q and A session. A reporter asked him whether he would contemplate ever coming back. And he said, among other things, if David Stern allows it, which is kind of yeah. odd. The it's commissioner. Very odd. There's no reason why would you? Why wouldn't he allow it? I mean, there was he wasn't he hadn't broken any rules. He hadn't done anything, you know, that really got him kicked out of the game that we know of. At least that they made public. But yeah, 
that's a very unusual statement to make if, you know, asking if the commissioner led him back in the league. Well, if you think about the fact that maybe he was kicked out for gambling or not kicked out, but kind of, you know, quietly suspended for gambling, then that statement makes a whole lot more sense. All right, we'll come back. A few more uh, thoughts on uh, the legacy of Michael Jordan and more on The Fix is In, the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Brian Tui, my guest. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, Brian Tui is with us. The Fix is In is the book. Uh, Brian, obviously... uh, uh, this sort of manipulation of outcomes of games and uh, 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 and so forth, turning a blind eye to uh, to certain dis- uh, indiscretions by some players, uh, and then punishing others to the full extent of the league's laws. This couldn't happen without the uh, the uh, complicity of the the major networks. Now, you uh, you pointed out that after. Uh, uh, Michael Jordan's repeated um, uh, gambling problems, uh, and he had been questioned by uh, uh, David Stern, the commissioner, his office a number of times, and slapped on the wrist. You uh, you watched uh, one night NBC's Bob Costas was interviewing David Stern during uh, the intermission of a basketball game, and started asking him about the Michael Jordan uh, affair. And to his credit, he was asking some pretty tough questions. But meanwhile, what was happening in Bob Costa's earpiece? He was being yelled at by his producer not to say anything about it. Dick Ebersol. Basically, he was being hushed, or trying to be hushed. So to Costas' credit, for once, he actually stuck to his guns and followed through. So Dick Ebersol, the, uh, the, uh, was he the exec producer of NBC Sports? I believe so, yeah. Was in Bob Costa's ear during the interview in his little uh, earpiece saying, stop this line of questioning, stop asking him about Michael Jordan, move on, move on. Now, how did you hear about that story? It was actually written about in another book. It was in a book called Money Players by, I think there was like three or four authors. One of them was Armin Katain, who does uh, some work for ESPN. So, so Bob Costas, uh, at some point, I guess, must have told this story. He must have, yeah. And I think Costas, Costas is one of the guys who I believe actually probably does know more about the whole Michael Jordan thing than he lets on to. Well, you know, there was a time when, um, when sports writers uh, made about the same amount of money as, uh, as an athlete. There was a, uh, there was a legendary sports writer here in Toronto called Milt Dunnell, uh, who um, was churning out sports columns well into his 90s, I believe. And when he was at his heyday back in the uh, the sixties, he was making as much per year as Mickey Mantle. Now, this is the the in, in the years before big network television. But in those days, and Milt told me once, he said, uh, you know, we used to fly on the same planes uh, as as the as the team, and uh, you know, we would eat in the same restaurants while we were on the road, and we became quite chummy. And there was sort of not necessarily with him, but there was a, a kind of an understanding that, that you know what. The old saying, what happens on the road stays on the road. But then something happened, of course, and then we had network television and big salaries, and all of a sudden the sports writers weren't traveling on the team planes, and they couldn't afford to eat in the same restaurants as the players. So that, that sort of the bond disappeared. 
So I'm wondering then what is to, what is to stop uh, you know, someone who's uh, toiling for one of the dailies, not network television, but a sports writer, from, from, from talking about this sort of stuff? I think, for one, I don't think many sports writers think of it in that way as I do. I don't think they look for such things as fix being in and that sort of thing. But the other thing is, is that's their job. And to report negatively on, just even negatively about, you know, the criminal behavior, drugs, and that sort of thing is almost like shooting themselves in the foot. If they do that, they can lose their access to locker rooms, they can lose their access to players, to teams. They can basically be, if they're a beat reporter, they can almost be, you know, blackballed off a team by reporting on the negative things. And I think that's why a lot of things stay secret, because if you notice, there's never... There's never news stories that break um, from local sports writers about this player's a drug user or this player's a criminal. All that usually comes either from the league saying this player was busted for drugs or from the police or authorities saying we arrested this guy doing this, that, or the other thing. They don't break negative stories, sports reporters. ESPN doesn't break negative stories. They may break you know, trade news and that sort of thing. But all the negative stories come from someone outside of the sport. All right, let's go to uh, the phones, and we'll welcome Mark from New York City. Hello, Mark. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, AM740. Thank you, uh, Richard, and thank you for taking my call. My question is, uh, is there anything about uh, Pat Tillman you can enlighten us on? And I ask this because he seems, not in so much of a negative sense, but he seems to be a, a rather, except, rather exceptional individual um, as far as his thinking and as far as his, uh, how he planned his life, not just in his professional football career, so uh, I ask again, is there anything you can enlighten us about on him? First, uh, Brian, uh, uh, explain to those not familiar with the Tillman story uh, uh, who he was and what happened to him over in Afghanistan. Well, he was an NFL player for the Arizona Cardinals, and he basically turned his back on the league and decided to serve his country instead. And when he was in Afghanistan, he was uh, killed in action. And there's still, I guess, some debate as to whether he was killed by friendly fire or how exactly his death occurred. But I, actually, I don't know much more about his predicament than that, unfortunately. I think the suggestion was that he was killed by, uh, by friendly fire or perhaps even something more nefarious, murdered. And uh, the idea was that it was uh, perhaps allegedly covered up uh, and, uh, because they wanted uh, Pat Tillman to sort of die a hero, the all-American uh, uh, you know, professional athlete, uh, beloved by millions who went over to serve his country. But it wasn't, uh, that's not the way it happened at all. Uh, and it could be. I mean, the I mean, the Arizona Cardinals and the NFL, you know, did all they could to basically build him up into perhaps more than he was. I mean, not that what he did wasn't great. I'm not saying that, but I mean, they basically profited in a way almost upon his death. How so? Well, I mean, they you know they did tributes to him and they sold commemorative jerseys and you know they they took it up a notch and like they do everything else they made it into a big show business ordeal you know they could just do it respectfully and say you know unfortunately this happened you know it's great he was on the team and let him go but they just kind of keep bringing him up and they keep you know doing what they can to profit off it let's uh, go back to the uh, the nfl for a moment and uh, you you actually list uh, a number of games that um, your research has led you to, to conclude were fixed by the nfl now, can you, uh, can you name some of those, well, the Super Bowl games, actually, can you name some of those uh, games and then explain why you believe they were fixed? 
Well, the past 14 Super Bowls or so, I think there's questionable occurrences in all of them. I think, but the biggest one that I think that really matters the most was the Super Bowl three, the famous Joe Namath guarantee where the Jets would beat the Colts, because that's that game was a real pivotal point in NFL history. That game meant everything to the league because at that time, before then, there was the NFL and then they had the rival league, the AFL, and the Jets were a member of the AFL and the Colts were the representative of the NFL. And when these two teams were to meet in Super Bowl three, in the first two Super Bowls, the Green Bay Packers, who were the NFL representative, just crushed the AFL team. And with the two leagues about to merge, the NFL needed something to convince its fans that the AFL was worth including into their league. They were afraid that they're really going to, you know, disenfranchise a bunch of fans by bringing in an inferior product. And then all of a sudden in that Super Bowl, the Jets played out of their mind and the Colts, which had been really historically one of the biggest juggernaut teams in NFL history, completely folded upon themselves. They had like five turnovers. I mean, it just the whole game just went to hell in a handbasket, and um, the Jets won. And that basically secured probably millions, if not billions of dollars for the league from that point on. Why haven't players come forward, uh, Everett, to... Uh... To be, to be whistleblowers and say, yes, I was approached by so-and-so to, uh, to miss a tackle or to, uh, uh, to, well, to the, purposely fumble. The interesting thing is, is it, in that Super Bowl, in the third Super Bowl, one of the players was Bubba Smith, who went on to do some Hollywood acting. And that He actually came out and he said he thought the game was fixed for the Jets to win. And he was a member of the Colts. Ah, okay. He didn't understand what his coaches did. He didn't understand that game at all. He really thought, and he was interviewed, I think, in one or two places, saying that he thought that game was rigged, and he had played in it. But then he turned around like 10 years later and said, well, no, I think, you know, I don't really think that's what happened. And I think part of the problem is, and why you don't have whistleblowers, is that, like in the NFL, players receive a pension from the league for the rest of their life. They're in a way kind of paid off by the league. Plus, a lot of them, um, that's, their, that's what they're known for, is being an NFL player. And if you start, you know... You lose that, what would you call it, like halo of respectability if you were the NFL player who said this whole thing is rigged, whereas a lot of the players, even guys who are low men on the totem pole, still like, you know, I played in the NFL, and that's, you know, a feather in their cap. You, you go on to say, uh, or go so far as to say, that Super Bowls are not won, they are awarded. Yeah, there's... The interesting thing is when the NFL decided to expand a few years ago in the 90s, they picked five team, or five cities that they thought were best for expansion, and all five of the cities wound up getting teams. One, the first two were Carolina and Jacksonville, and then after that there was St. Louis, Baltimore, and what's the other one? I forget the other one off the top of my head. But they, um, St. Louis won a Super Bowl not long after they – moved from uh, becoming the Los Angeles Rams to becoming the St. Louis Rams. They won a Super Bowl. The um, Baltimore Ravens moved from Cleveland out of Cleveland into Baltimore, and they won a Super Bowl. And it just seemed seems really coincidental that teams move and then are suddenly successful. The same thing happens in the NHL. The NHL had, like, the Whalers move out of Hartford down to Carolina. They won a Stanley Cup right away. Um, the Nordiques went from Quebec to Colorado. They won a Stanley Cup all of a sudden. 
Same with the Minnesota North Stars. They moved out of Minnesota to Texas. They won a Stanley Cup. In, or, in, in other words, really the, coincidental. they want these new franchises to to uh, succeed, and uh, you, you make a similar claim about the Phoenix Coyotes in the NHL. Yeah. They, well, they want... It's a good way. The best way to draw fans is to be a winning team. Yet, as and you point if out, you suddenly have a team like you know. I'm sure there's a lot of people in Carolina who said, "What in God's name is a hurricane? Hartford Whalers? What? What's the NHL?" I mean, they had to just kind of in a way baffle them. But all of a sudden, the team's successful. You know, they're getting radio play, and all of a sudden, you know, they're doing these things, and it draws fans, and it makes them get noticed. And uh, I think it's, I think it's artificial. Yet you mentioned the fans. Yet, as you point out, because particularly in the in the NFL, well, let's face it, across the board, it's in professional sports, it's 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 profit driven. Uh, the fan base is secondary. Why else, you know, would they pull teams out of these cities, like Baltimore or Cleveland with the Browns, when they consistently sold out? Yeah. Well, the NFL. Someone in the NFL once stated that it really doesn't matter where the teams play because what matters is people watching at home on television. That's where the money's made. I mean, an NFL franchise could not exist selling out the eight home games a year they play. It's not like baseball where they play 82 games a year at home. They play eight games at home. And, you mean, you'd have to charge, you know, thousands of dollars a a ticket in order to make the kind of revenue they make now just out of TV. They make, like I say, $6 billion a year, which basically plays every player's salary right off the bat just off the TV ratings and everything after that's gravy. Let's go back to the phones, and uh, Nika is in Toronto. Nika, you're on the line with Brian Tui, the author of The Fix is In. Oh, just up my alley. I love your show, Richard, and I shop at Conspiracy Culture with Patrick and Kadena. Ah, thank you for supporting our sponsors. Appreciate oh, yes. that. They're good people. Uh, uh, yes, very much. I'm a little gun-shy, but Brian, I want to ask you, um, I've uh, through Conspiracy Culture Store, I studied uh, uh, symbolism with secret societies. I don't know if you know anything about that stuff. Oh, yeah, some of it, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm looking forward to reading your book. But I noticed, I'm a big football lover, I noticed these last five years all the symbolism in the commentators' booth on TV. They have the football exactly like the all-seeing eye. They mention meetings at the round table. This is all Freemasonry, well, whatever you want to call them, secret societies, uh, corporate uh, capitalists, right? Oh, yeah. And I've, I just wanted to share that with you, and if uh, you, know, you talk about any of that in your book, because uh, not too many people know and have studied secret symbolism. And these entities that make money like that belong to those people. Well, yeah, you, if you're looking at uh, some of these franchises that are worth, some of them a quarter of a billion dollars, I would suspect that some of the owners uh, would probably end up at a Bilderberger meeting from time to time. <laughs> That's right. I, I mean, I, I just like I couldn't believe all the symbolism on TV, the round table. Uh, they even do uh, Satanism hand gestures to players. I couldn't believe that these last five years has been such a difference. I always thought that was the Texas Longhorn symbol, but uh, oh. I, 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 you know, no. The thing is, though, Nika, every president of the United States apparently is a Texas Longhorn fan because they're all giving us the <laughs> the devil sign or whatever. Thank you for the call, Brian. There may be another book in there for you. The uh, this you know the secret uh, society symbols of professional sports. Well, you're right, too, because there are so many owners that are huge businessmen. I mean, look at Jerry Jones, who owns the Cowboys. I mean, how did he manage to put together a $1 billion stadium in the middle of Texas, you know? I mean, these guys do have some connections to bigger, more conspiratorial things, I'm sure. 
Deep pockets, no question. All right, Brian Tui stays with us. On the other side, more of the showbiz manipulations of the National Football League, Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, say it ain't so, and NASCAR. My name is Richard Serrett. Keeping an eye on the new world order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. I've long suspected that professional sports are akin to the, uh, the Roman amphitheater, the Roman games with the gladiators and uh, throwing Christians to the lions and such things, essentially devised to distract the rabble, as the, uh, the Roman citizens were called, the rabble, for fear uh, that um, if they didn't have this distraction, they'd take to the streets and revolt. So how do you use up all of that uh, pent-up energy and redirect it in a less destructive uh, manner? You give them circuses, right? That's essentially what we're talking about with professional sports. I love this uh, quote here. Uh, The Hippodrome, the Great Hippodrome, which was slang from the late 1800s and early 1900s, the definition of Hippodrome, to arrange contests with predetermined winners. Well, that's essentially the crux of the fixes in, the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR by Brian Tui, who joins me on the line. Uh, is, there a, um, is there a sporting venue uh, known as the Hippodrome right now, uh, Brian, in, in either any of the professional leagues? Not that I know of, no. no. It's an interesting it's a good name, though. It is a, it's a wonderful name, the Hippodrome. All right, let's go back to the calls. And uh, Dave is in Hamilton. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show, AM seven forty. Dave. Hi guys, how you doing? Well, thank you. I've got some uh, information that uh, is kind of a bombshell here. I hope you're sitting down for it. All right, no names, please, until oh, uh, these. Not no names. All but, right. Uh, I cut out a newspaper article some time ago how the uh, soccer leagues in Europe they were actually. Um, tampering with the pre-game meals to affect the condition of the players to throw those games. Uh, the, now, now who, was, who was spiking the meals? Organized crime. Yeah. Also the, um, I don't know, the waiters or whatever that were serving the meals at the uh, pre-game meals, they were um, spiking them with something that would make them you know, lethargic or whatever, and uh, they wouldn't be able to perform up to their peak performance, so the other team would have that advantage. Interesting. I also had uh, Pat Quinn had uh, talked about in Turin there how the players seem to be very lethargic as well when they finished, I think, in seventh place at the Olympics then. And one of the reasons why they um, nobody can come forward as a whistleblower because you'll get targeted. And this is why they have these performance uh, agreements with the, uh, the, the sports leagues. If you screw up, in other words, they can frame you for charges and you're bounced out of the league like Michael Vick. 
Well, yeah, that's uh, that is an interesting uh, uh, a chapter, Brian. I think you sort of alluded to that that uh, they 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 tend to uh, fill their rosters with uh, a lot of sort of blackmailable uh, figures. Uh, and keep in mind that many uh, athletes are drafted uh, out of college; they don't actually complete their college degree. So if they're turfed off the roster, it's back to the streets, and they have to slum it like the rest of us. And after you've been coddled and catered to. Uh, for several years, you know, you get accustomed to a particular lifestyle, that uh, it'd be pretty easy to hold something like that over someone's head. Dave, thanks for the call. Brian, did you have anything you wanted to talk about uh, the Vic uh, case? No, but getting back to what he was actually talking about, it's interesting, the organized crime and soccer thing, because there was an, there's another author in uh, England, he's actually an Oxford professor named um, Declan Hill, and he wrote a book called The Fix, about organized crime and professional soccer. And in his book, he talks about how many, many soccer games the world over have been fixed by organized crime. And he even goes so far as to say that Olympic games have been fixed and World Cup soccer games have been fixed. Well, you see, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, I I don't think that would surprise too many people that organized crime would be trying to... uh, you know, rig the outcome uh, of a game well, because they have they have it, money on it. But but it's another thing entirely to just suggest that the league itself is doing it. It is, but it's interesting that if you look at professional sports in the United States, supposedly there has not been a game influenced by organized crime, or actually there hasn't been a game bet upon by a player since like the 1960s in any of the leagues. And that was in the NFL when they suspended Paul Horning and Alex Karras for betting on games they played in. So baseball says that it hasn't had a game fixed since, like, 1919 in the Black Sox World Series. The NHL says the player hasn't fixed a game since, like, the 1940s. The NFL since the 1960s. And basketball, I don't even know. Actually, the NFL just says it's never had a game fixed. It's had players gambled, but it's never had a game fixed. And I don't even know if the NBA really admits to ever having a game being fixed. But we got to know that the Mafia has influenced games. In fact, the wise guy by the name of Michael Francesi, who goes around talking about sports gambling and he does presentations to professional teams, he admits that he was involved in fixing games. Hmm. And that's another thing that the league, like I say, is basically lying to its fans about, that games had to have been fixed. Well, here's fact, Another he... author has come up, another author by the name of, um, oh, what's his name, Dan Moldea, who wrote a book called Interference about organized crime in the NFL, and he says that in the late 1980s, at least 70 games had been fixed by um, the mafia or by the players. Well, and that's something that the NFL won't admit to. Here's, uh, I mean, I'm not going to mention, obviously, any names, but look at the, uh, the NHL and some of its uh, past and present board of governors, some of the ownership. Some of these guys are pretty shady. Some of them, you know, they've done some, some jail time. Um, oh, yeah. so, so where some does the original the... owners of the uh, NHL were um, known gamblers. Some of the original owners of the NFL were known gamblers. Hmm. I mean, they had a lot of them had bought teams to become legitimate. <laughs> so I guess I guess that was my point. When where where does uh, organized crime and sort of the the actual league where is that line? I mean, how, how much of professional sports, in fact, is controlled and owned by organized crime? Maybe it's, that's the it's question. A very interesting question because one of the guys, um, DeBartolo, Ed DeBartolo. He tried to buy, I believe it was the Chicago White Sox at one point in time in the past, like in the 1970s, I believe. And Major League Baseball wouldn't let him in because they thought some of his background was suspicious. 
but the NFL turned around to let them buy the 49ers. They were like, they are happy to have them. But, of course, the NFL, again, they had owners that in the past were known gamblers who owned racetracks, who had really shady pasts. All right, we'll step away and uh, come back, dive right back into the showbiz manipulations of various professional sporting leagues with Brian Tui, author of The Fix is In. Phone lines remain open, 416-360-0740, and toll-free from Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Register online on uh, my website, richardserrett.com, and you can watch my weekly video blogs. Again, richardserrett.com. just takes a few moments to register, and then you'll have access to my weekly video blogs. Also, I wanted to uh, mention that I'll be a keynote speaker at the 4th Annual Toronto Freedom Festival. Uh, on Saturday, May the 1st, 2010 at Queen's Park. And uh, you can look for me at the iWeekly Speaker Stage. And that is being uh, hosted. Uh, They're calling it the Conspiracy Hour, and it's hosted by, of course, Patrick White, our dear friend at Conspiracy Culture. That's the 4th Annual Toronto Freedom Festival, Saturday, May 1st, 2010, Queen's Park. And this is uh, apparently the city's largest one-day outdoor Spring Festival attracts something like 30,000 people to Queen's Park uh, North in the heart of uh, downtown Toronto. All right, back to The Fix is In with uh, Brian Tui. Uh, Brian, you mentioned something that's interesting, and we've all thought this. You see a play, uh, whether it's uh, uh, football or basketball or hockey or what have you, and it's just, a, it's just this remarkable play that seems just too good to be true. And... Uh, you're suggesting that it probably is just too good to be true. Can you give us some examples of a play that we've seen and, and uh, it was, according to your research, probably uh, manufactured, stage-managed, a hoax? Well, I can give you an example, one that I don't have proof of, um, but that might just kind of irk some of your listeners. I think this last gold medal game between Canada and the United States in hockey was rigged. Wait a minute. Is this sour (laughs) grapes, Brian? Sour grapes? No, that's the thing is, again, if you look look at those Olympic games, NBC and the NHL have one of the most unusual television contracts in all sports. They basically split all revenue 50-50. NBC recoups their costs, and then whatever's left over, the two split. And it just so happened that NBC was broadcasting, at least here in the United States, broadcasting the Olympics, and the NHL just happens to send its players to the Olympics, basically for publicity more than anything else. And here you wound up with a game where the United States was playing Canada in the finals, and Canada's golden boy, the next Wayne Gretzky, just so happens to be the guy who scores the game-winning goal in overtime. It seems, like I say, a little too good to be true. Um, you think everything behind it. I mean, now it could very well have happened just as it happened. I, I can admit that. I don't think in all sports, I don't think every game is rigged by any means. I think certain key games, certain situations are created, but I don't think everything's rigged. I think a lot of it happens as you see it. But I think there is profit and motivation behind some of these results that seem a little too good to be true, and that could very well have been one of them. 
Well, you know what? I, I think you, you, there's a lot of uh, credibility to what to what you're saying in the book, but for some, I don't know. For that, that seems a bit of a stretch to me. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, you know. Well, that's the thing is, it's very hard to tell. I mean, it's very hard to tell if a player or a referee was fixing the game or blowing the call because the rules are supposed to be the rules in all sports, and a lot of times you see referees supposedly blow calls. Well, there's no motivation for them to make calls. I mean, they can, you know, they're supposedly reviewed by the league and that sort of thing, but there's no law that says games will be played by specific rules, and there's nothing in the player's contract that says they have to go out and give 100%. So, I mean, there's a lot of times people can just take plays off, games off, and that sort of thing, and you could chalk it up to a bad game, or perhaps there's more going on beneath it. Maybe they are in on some sort of fix. It's a really hard thing to determine. I think the only way to determine it is by looking at what's going on surrounding the game. Well, we've all been witness to a game that was decided upon a very, very questionable call. Uh, We can talk about that in a minute. You mentioned the Olympics. Uh, Let's work in uh, our buddy Nelson Thal, who wants to talk about the Olympics as well. Hello, Nelson. Hey, how you doing, Richard? Great, well. great topic. I've always felt that sports was rigged, especially since the phantom punch. I'm just wondering what, um, you remember in the Clay Shaw-Liston fight? Oh, Sonny, uh, Sonny uh, Liston and, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's right. Cassius Clay. Cassius Clay. Before it became Muhammad, yeah. You said Clay Shaw. You're going back to your JFK oh, yeah, assassination sorry, 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 research yeah, yeah, there, Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, can, can I, it's a, I'm, I've got to read your book. What can you tell us about how extensive can the the rigging uh, be? I mean, like a referee in hockey could make the difference, um, although it would be hard to get to Ryan Miller of the of, of the USA Olympic team or any of those guys. They're pretty dedicated people, don't you think? Like, you know, they want to win gold. I think, well, you assume they're dedicated. Yeah. You know they are dedicated. You don't know... You don't know a player no, could you be don't. a severe drug addict. You don't know a player could be just despicable. Yeah. I mean, certain players, too, I'm sure if you've been in the league, you know, for a few years, it's a job. And, I mean, as much as we like to put these things on a pedestal, I mean, a game like the Super Bowl or the Stanley Cup Finals, it's a hockey game. It's a football yeah. game. That's really all it is. And the, Richard, you know, do you remember we had a game in Toronto which we felt was very much rigged uh, where L.A. was playing the Leafs in the early 90s and uh, Gretzky cut Gilmore and there was never um, never a penalty called and a- a- Andrichuk got called for holding and there was no one within 50 feet of him and he was just holding the net. I mean, that game, do you remember that game, Richard? 93, I think it was, and the Leafs were, I think. There was a, they were one penalty away from going to the uh, the finals against the Montreal Canadiens, and, and they probably would have beat them. But, of course, the TV networks wanted L.A. into the, in it, and we've always felt since then that that game was certainly rigged. Well, uh, Leaf fans, to be sure, uh, felt that there was some great deal of unfairness there, Um well, you you mentioned uh, Gretzky, Nelson. Let me ask Brian about that because it is featured in the in the book the 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 trade, uh, probably the one of the most famous trades in professional sports history when uh, Peter Pocklington uh, traded Wayne Gretzky to uh, to uh, Bruce McNall and the Los Angeles Kings, and I remember watching the uh, the press conference and uh, call me cynical, but. Uh, uh, I just found that Wayne Gretzky seemed—I um, I, don't—I certainly don't want to impugn his character. I, I just—I just 
thought that there was something odd about that press conference and and less than uh, he was being less than genuous, genuine rather, less than genuine. Uh, Brian, what what was behind that Wayne Gretzky trade? I believe it was. I believe Gretzky was traded to help expand the league. I believe he was kind of doing the league a favor. Of course, it didn't hurt that he had a Hollywood actress wife too that could help him get to L.A. But I think ever since he got traded to L.A., the NHL has changed its mindset and kind of almost moving out of Canada and the northern United States and moving to the southern states, which seems ridiculous from a business standpoint. But what, what, like, what would be wrong with that? So he was traded. I mean, what? there's nothing untoward about that, though, is there? I, I lost that in there. Is there anything untoward about that, about that trade? In other words, was there... Uh, uh, I mean, did someone force Peter Pockington's hand and say, if you don't trade Wayne Gretzky to L.A., you know, we'll kick you out of the league? Or what What? What was... Well, Pockington was hurting for money. Yes. He needed cash. And he's gone on record, and I think it was on a Canadian broadcast um, interview with him, that he, they asked him, do you see Wayne Gretzky as a commodity? And he said, yeah. I mean, this is the greatest player probably in NHL history. And he looked at him as, you know, like a side of beef. Like, hey, if I can get us some money for him, I'll do whatever you want me to do with him. It doesn't matter that much to me. So do you think the league, uh, the uh, the commissioner at the time, t- pulled Peter Pockington aside and said, listen, the Board of Governors, because let's face it, the commissioner takes his orders from the Board of Governors. The Board of Governors needs the franchise in Los Angeles to succeed. You will sell Wayne Gretzky to L.A. Do you think it could have happened that way? I don't know if it was that direct, but I think Pocklington could have said, you know, I'm in need of some cash. Um, what can I do? And I think the league could say, hey, you know what, if we want to open up, get Gretzky out of Edmonton, which, I mean, for America, that's like no man's land up there, and move this guy who's, you know, he was like Michael Jordan for the NBA, move Gretzky to some place where we can get a lot more media coverage and a lot more mileage out of what he can do, put him in a place like L.A., I think we can all agree to make this deal work. And for everybody, it, it worked out really nice. Now, it could just be that that's, you know, the trade just happened as it happened. But I think there's a lot more behind it than just that. I think there was a way for the NHL to try to up its, up its markability by putting him in Los Angeles. Brian Tui is with us, the author of The Fixes In, the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. We haven't talked about NASCAR uh, at all, and we will get around to it. Uh, but um, you back to the NBA for a moment. And you mentioned that um, you say it's going. It's revealed in the book why the NBA should be afraid of the new owner of the New Jersey Nets. Now, I'm not a huge NBA fan, so I don't know uh, much about that. But what did you mean by the NBA should be very afraid of the the new owner of the New Jersey Nets? I forget the feller's name who is in line to buy the New Jersey Nets, but he is a Russian. He's a big Russian um, businessman. And it's very likely, from what I've read and seen, that he's connected to the Russian mafia. And like a lot of big Russian um, investors are, they're connected to that Russian mob. Allegedly. We, we have to point out allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. Yes. He's supposedly connected to them. And it's interesting because in the NHL, you had problems that seemed like in the 80s with players like Pavel Bure and some of the others who were Russian players who were also connected to the Russian mafia. 
And it's um, the same person I mentioned, this Declan Hill, who wrote the book about uh, soccer and organized crime. He did a piece for Frontline, a documentary about the connection between Russian mafia and NHL players. And um, he pointed out that the Russians like to get a hold on younger players, like in their 15s and 16s when they're juniors, and kind of work with them and get them all, you know, built up because perhaps in the future they plan on using them to throw a game here or there. Interesting. I want to talk about uh, uh, television's uh, influence. And as you point out, you know, back in the uh, in the 60s, mid-60s, when CBS paid something like $14 million, imagine that, a, a measly $14 million for the rights to the NFL games, it was the network who acted as if they had bought the league. Uh, but now that's all changed, and and and, and uh, now it, it's sort of it's the other way around. The 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 broadcasters, the play-by-play people for both TV and radio, they have to be approved by the by the club. I remember a time when when uh, uh, Harold Ballard, uh, owner of the Leafs, uh, wanted to kick. Uh, it was I think I think it was uh, Dick Beddoes who was uh, doing the uh, sort of the color uh, commentary for the Leaf games. We wanted to kick him off the. Uh, uh, kick him off the team, or kick him off the, uh, the 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 broadcast. So, talk to us a little bit about uh, television's influence over the game, but also the game's influence over television. Well, television has changed the way every game has been played. I mean, it has influenced the sport um, in various ways. I mean, for the NHL, I mean, I think all the new rules, the elimination, you know, the two line pass, and the shootout and overtime, and that was partially made to get better TV ratings. The NFL instituted the two-minute warning to get, you know, more excitement um, into their fans. You know, there's only two minutes left in the game, and also to have more advertising be thrown at the people when they're in that excited state. Um, and it's interesting that uh, the leagues do control what's, you know, shown on the networks, and it's everything. Like, if you watch an NFL game, you know, it's a presentation of the National Football League. It's not a presentation of CBS Sports. It's a presentation of the league. You know, you can't rebroadcast or retransmit a Major League Baseball game without their written consent. Not the people who are broadcasting it, who you would think would own it, but no, it's it's still owned by that league. And I think that's how you can potentially see the manipulation involved in these games, is that the leagues control everything that surrounds the game and we assume what occurs on the field is natural, and I don't think it is. I think it's a showbiz presentation. Uh, you talk about the NFL becoming or becoming very close to becoming the XFL, which uh, a lot of people thought was simply one step away from professional uh, wrestling. It was sort of a scripted soap opera, as you describe it. Um, has the NFL become the XFL? To some degree, yeah. I think it is. I think... I mean, if you listen to a lot of the um, players' interviews, I mean, they're all very vanilla. You know, we have to give 110% out there, and, you know, we have to try our hardest, and we have to take it to the next level. They've sucked a lot of the energy and life out of these players because they want them more controllable. I mean, you can't badmouth the referee or you get fined. You, there's a lot of things that players can't do. You know, they can't celebrate touchdowns in certain ways because they'll get fined. I mean, the league is just clamped down on everything that players and coaches can do within the sport. And again, it's just another way of manipulating the game. 
instead of letting it be free-flowing and letting it, you know, go and really put on a show, it has to be a show that the NFL and its owners approve of. All right. We'll um, work our way back to uh, Major League Baseball and a few questions about their... uh the regulations concerning drug offenses. I just, I, I always remember the the, uh, the revolving uh, door where uh, Steve Howe, relief pitcher with the uh, Los Angeles uh, Dodgers at one time, I think he had something like eight or nine uh, drug convictions and they kept allowing him back. Uh, there, there does seem to be a great deal of hypocrisy where uh, drug testing is concerned in Major League Baseball. We'll discuss that and much more with Brian Tui. The Fix is in. Phone line still available, 416-360-0740. And toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. Don't turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Let me read you a short passage from The Fix is In by Brian Tui, who joins us here on AM 740, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Major League Baseball. In 1969, a researcher and mathematician by the name of Robert Helmbold wrote a research paper for the Rand Corporation titled, Have the World Series Been Fixed? Helmbold wasn't discussing the fabled 1919 World Series featuring the Black Sox. No, he was considering the situation surrounding the games being played at the time in the 1960s. It was Helmbold's contention that the, the longer the duration of the World Series, the more everyone involved from players and owners to mass media and even the gamblers profited. He felt it might be necessary to monitor the league to ensure the outcomes weren't prearranged. So this is a... a a guy writing a report for the Rand Corporation, and uh, their name pops up again during the uh, the uh, ephedrine uh, uh, scandal, I suppose, with the death of Steve Belcher with the Baltimore Orioles. But talk to me a little bit about this this first Rand Corporation report on uh, fixing World Series games, Brian. Well, it's interesting because there's nothing in the report that says why Embolt did the research he did. It's. I have no idea why. What made him? What made the Rand Corporation decide we need to look and see if the World Series is being fixed? I don't think the guy just did it on a whim. I think he had an inkling that something may be up. It's interesting because when he um, did his research, it was I think it was published in 1969. He um, he was kind of upset that he didn't have enough of a. uh, 
what would you call it, a study group to work with. He didn't have enough numbers, which he thought may slightly skewer his results. But as I point out in the book, between 1949, when the first televised World Series took place, and um, 1989, 20 of those 40 World Series went to Game 7. And it seems like, without doing the high-minded math that he did, it seems kind of odd that more often than not, like the majority of the time, basically, the World Series wound up going to seven games. And just like he said, that profits everybody, the players, fans, or not fans really, but the players, the owners, the mass media, all of that. If I wanted to ensure that a, uh, uh, a series would go seven games, I probably would want to uh, look for somebody in the bullpen to get to, uh, you know, to serve up a, a gopher ball late in the game. Maybe a, a middle reliever, maybe even a closer. Is that how it would work? Potentially. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people, most likely, the pitcher would be the best, a pitcher would be the best type of person to get, but you can also even get the umpires. I mean, if the umpire calling the balls and strikes changes how the strike zone is called, and it seems like every umpire nowadays, especially, they don't go by the steadfast rule that's written in baseball's rule book as to what the strike zone is. Everybody's just kind of open to interpretation. So if an umpire decides, well, I'm going to make my strike zone a little different, especially to favor one team perhaps over another, just the count, the pitch count, the balls and strikes can alter what a batter has to do in order to protect himself and try to get on base. Boy, that is so true, and we've, we've all seen a strike zone sort of expand uh, at different times in the game where it's supposed to be consistent. Hard to, hard to imagine, though, uh, um, umpires are doing that. Yet, um, I mean, but how, would, how would that work, do you think? I mean, would they, would they be told prior to the game who, which, which team must win? Well, it's interesting. If you go to the Tim Donahue, who was the NBA referee, and he was one who just got in trouble with the gambling on the games, he came out and he said, or he didn't say, but he wrote to the um, federal investigators that he, it was his belief that NBA games were being rigged by the referees, basically on the NBA's order to ensure that certain playoff game series went to Game 7, or in certain teams would win over other teams. Mm-hmm. And in his letters, he didn't say that the NBA necessarily told the refs, you know, they didn't send something on NBA letterhead that said, by the way, we need this team to win tonight. But the referees kind of knew what the NBA wanted, and they made that happen. And that could very well be the same thing for baseball. They could know that, you know, maybe it'd be better if the Yankees, you know, went all the way this year. And they, you know, adjust their calls and their um, rulings based upon that. It doesn't have to be necessarily said. It could just be kind of implied and known. All right. Let's, they're all in the same boat. They're all in the same ship. That's true. That's true. Uh, they all uh, benefit. Uh, let's uh, go back to the phones and this time to the home of the uh, the Bucks and the Brewers. Uh, Todd is on the line from Milwaukee. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, guys. It's a great topic. It's uh, actually fascinating. I, I had, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you see things happen and you just, you just shake your head and you kind of pause and go, you know, that just doesn't look right. You know, I, there, there have been a lot of times as a, a big sports fan when I've, I've thought that, uh, you know, things just didn't have, they didn't appear right. The question I had for Brian was, you know, of all of the things that he's probably poured over for this book, um, what, is the, what is the one 
piece of evidence that you look at and you just go, you know, this is the most compelling piece of information I was able to get for this book. And secondly, I wanted to talk to a huge NFL fan. I just, over the past several years, the things I looked at and shook my head at were with respect specifically to the New Orleans Saints after Katrina, you know, then they, you know, they start winning. Everybody's a Saints fan. And, and the New England Patriots after uh, – uh, 9/11. I don't know if you guys covered that. I, I hadn't heard it mentioned, but I, I wanted to know if you had any. Brian had any information on uh, uh, either of those things. Go ahead, Brian. <clears throat> well, one of the biggest things I think that kind of almost proves the book as being as true as it could be is for baseball and the collusion case in the mid 1980s. The mid 1980s, baseball was having supposedly money problems. And their new commissioner, Peter Urberoff, got all the owners together in a room. And he said, in order to make us more profitable, what I think we should do is not sign any free agents whatsoever. And everybody should more worry about their money as opposed to signing these players. We'll knock salaries down and we'll profit more. And for three seasons in a row, that's exactly what Major League Baseball did. They stopped signing free agents. And remember that, yeah. Every well, and it's interesting because everybody from the you know Yankees down to the lowly you know Brewers or the Kansas City Royals, hey, they all said we're not going to improve our team. We're going to make money, and that definitely affected outcomes. It is definitely a manipulation of the game, and it's a proven conspiracy where they all sat in a room and said this is what's going to happen, and that's exactly what happened. But why are they doing that now? They're spending like drunken sailors. Well, after it happened. After they were busted on it, they did turn around and just start spending money. But the interesting thing is, is collusion's come back twice since then. I think it was like in 2002, quietly, very quietly, the Major League Baseball owners were again punished for colluding against free agents. And just recently has come back again where players' agents have contemplated suing the league again for collusion because they don't think players are being paid fairly. Because this year, I think... um, beginning of this season salaries dropped gosh it was somewhere between like right around 10 percent across the board well in the nhl you don't need to have collusion because you uh, you have an imposed cap a salary cap yeah but baseball does not have such a thing really they have the luxury tasks which will you know punish a team like the new york yankees but they could care less because they make so much money they're willing to throw some money to you know like the pittsburgh pirates and the royals as long as they can win their championships and keep you know their revenue up, doesn't matter. To and them. keep selling that uh, that memorabilia and those jerseys. Oh yeah. All right, uh, Brian, stay with us. We'll uh, take one time out. Uh, come back. A few moments remain with Brian Tui. At the bottom of the hour, we'll open up the lines and we'll do uh, some spine tingling tales and just about anything else you want to discuss. Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. So much ground to cover with Brian Tui, the author of The Fix is In. Uh, my intention was to take this to the bottom of the hour, but we, with uh, Brian's permission, I may extend this just because there's, as I say, so much to discuss. I, I do want to talk about um, the major, uh, major League Baseball's drug policy. Uh, and uh, you're quite uh, emphatic, and, and uh, you don't hold any punches when you say that it's total BS, uh, uh, Brian. But let me ask you about something entirely different, and, and uh, it's it's golf. And I and I it, it uh, 
suddenly occurred to me that we hadn't even discussed Tiger Woods, and that, of course, is, remains the, the big uh, sporting uh, story. And uh, you talk about Tiger Woods uh, and his troubles and suggest that uh, it, it, it isn't necessarily all about the sex, that uh, the troubles began some, somewhere else. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I'm not the only one who's mentioned this. There's other reporters who have, but two of supposedly of Tiger Woods' best friends are Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley, and both Jordan has his known gambling issues, and Charles Barkley also has some serious gambling issues, but he doesn't say they're issues because he said he can afford them, he can afford the losses, so it's not really a gambling problem he has. And it's interesting that those are supposedly his two best friends, and it wasn't really until he started hanging out with these two guys that he started getting into all these problems with the women and living kind of in the fast lane. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, they could be really bad influences on the guy. All right. Let's uh, go back to baseball now. I, w- I do want to talk about their drug policy. And you, and you say that it is, is, uh, it's total BS. It, it's certainly, at the very least, hypocritical uh, with, with some players – uh, it's sort of, you know, three strikes and you're out. And, and I mentioned Steve Howe going back, uh, well, probably close to 30 years now since he was uh, one of the top relievers in the game with, I think, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And it seemed to me he had at least eight, nine, ten chances. Yeah, they gave him, they gave that guy a lot of leeway. And the question is always, why? Why do you give a guy that many chances? And to interesting because throughout baseball's history, I mean, there have been players, Mickey Mantle for one, he was a raging alcoholic, but he still managed to put together a great career. And the, But the drug testing program with baseball is really interesting because players know when they're going to be tested. They know that when they report spring training, they get tested now for, like, steroids, for example. And it's interesting, sometimes you see players you know, hold out and don't report to training camp right away and that sort of thing. And it could be very well that they know they're going to be tested for steroids when they show up, so they need that little extra time basically to clean their system out before they go walking into this drug test. And then there's other drugs like HGH, for example, that the leagues don't even test for because they can't do a urine test on it. They have to do a blood test. Human growth hormone. Yeah, and there's no, um, there's nothing in the collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners that allows them to do blood tests on these athletes. So while baseball can say, hey, we're steroid-free now, which they probably aren't, they're definitely not human growth hormone-free because they're not testing for it. So you could have basically everybody out there running around using the stuff and playing and getting away with it scot-free. Mark McGuire, uh, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds. Uh, I mean, they've, they've all... Uh, been, um, I don't know, but well, Barry Bonds is still in denial <laughs> that he yeah, was on he's anything. Still in although he trouble because of it. Although his apparently from one season to the next, his shoe size grew something like two or three sizes. <laughs> uh, so size two supposedly. Yeah, so muscle muscle bound was he. Um, but in your estimation, uh, did the league know about it? Did they cover it up? Because obviously, uh, in their in their day, these in their prime, these players were the face of the league. I mean, Sammy Sosa was a very lovable character. Uh, that home run derby uh, between McGuire and Sosa uh, rivaled the, the, the Maris uh, um, 
a mantle uh, home run derby back in 62, I think it was, or 61. 61. Yeah, 61. Well, that, I think that whole home run derby between Sosa and McGuire brought the league almost back from its death. Because they had that lockout in, I think it was 1994, to cancel the World Series for right. the first time since 1904. And baseball, there's a lot of fans who said, you know, I'm never watching baseball again. And then all of a sudden, these players, these bigger and better players supposedly started hitting home runs at an incredible pace that baseball had never seen before. And suddenly fans got interested again. Isn't that kind of odd that they started hitting all these home runs and fans start showing up again? And I think, yeah, I think owners knew. I think everybody knew. In fact, I think one of the people who knew was the Baseball Writers of America who loved patting themselves on the back because they keep Pete Rose out of the Hall of Fame because of his gambling issues. But they did nothing to say that steroids are in the game. They did nothing to protect the game at that time. And now, once again, they're saying, well, maybe we shouldn't put, you know, McGuire in the Hall of Fame because he was a steroid user during those years. Well, how come you guys didn't report on it? How come nobody made any noise? Because you had to know. They're around the players enough. They're there at spring training all the way through to the World Series. They had to know these guys were getting unnaturally big. Are there um, uh, players in professional sports that are, are untouchable? Uh, for example, I mean, we, we talked briefly about these uh, s- intelligence security forces uh, that uh, patrol the, uh, you know, the, the hallways and the, and the sporting uh, arenas in the various well, leagues. Have, like that, that secret police force that kind of every league has, they have representatives in every city that the league operates within. And many of them, like you said, are at former FBI or CIA or DEA guys, and they have connections to the local police. And it's a very easy way for the leagues to keep things hush-hush if they want to. So the, do they have a clean team, for example, if, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a Major League Baseball player who, who was, uh, you know, uh, for his team, he was the franchise, uh, and he got into some legal trouble. Uh, let's say with a, uh, a, 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 I don't know, a young woman in a hotel room. Uh, do, do they have that kind of power where they could essentially, uh, you know, expunge that story from the uh, the, the the newspapers, uh, uh, from the courts? I believe, yeah, they do. I believe they can keep things. Again, it depends how it gets out. But like I say, you have the sports writers basically in your hip pocket that you can control. So as long as it doesn't get, you know, really into the police blotter and into the courts, yeah, I think they can keep a lot of those things where, you know, the cops bust some player doing something in a hotel room with a prostitute and drugs and whatever else. And I think if they get to it first, basically, yeah, they could keep it quiet. And if a sports writer dared to write about it, do you think that the team... He'd be gone. (laughs) That would basically almost be the end of his career. Because what else is he going to do? I mean, if you're a sports writer, that's what you cover. You cover sports. I mean, you're not going to turn and start writing about food. You're going to, you have to write about sports, and you need the access to the players, to the teams, to do your job. And if you're going to write something negative, especially something that's almost, like I say, it's a breaking story that hasn't you know, made it out in any other way, you're going to be in trouble with that team. Criminal activity. Think, sorry, criminal. I, the sport, I say the sports reporters, I believe, know that. Yeah, it's implied. You don't, they don't have to be told. It's understood. Uh, criminal activity aside, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, um, scripting the, uh, the game, as you say, like a soap opera, rigging the outcome, uh, 
What does it matter? Uh, I mean, we all enjoy professional wrestling. To, some of us, I should say, enjoy professional wrestling. We, we are able to suspend our disbelief. We know that it's fake, and yet for that brief moment, we sort of buy into the narrative and so forth. It's great entertainment. So wh- why should we care uh, if professional sports is, is operating the same way? Well, because I think so many people put so much time and effort into their own lives, into watching these things, into believing it's real, that if, if it's not real, not only have they maybe wasted a lot of time, but they've been duped. And I think too many people put too much emphasis on the sports. I mean, you brought it up before that, I mean, it's, it's like the Romans. You know, they put on these great shows to distract the people while the government did something completely different. And I think that's almost the same thing today, that you have these, you know, that's why I think you have to worry about the storylines going on unnaturally long, is because it, it gets people interested that they're not paying attention to the things that really matter in their lives. I mean, it's just, it's a baseball game. It's great if you want to watch, you know, a baseball game or a hockey game and spend two hours, you know, or three hours. You know, it's a great diversion, but so many people have made it their lives and have gotten so in-depth in it that they are emotionally attached to the team. When the team loses, they're depressed for a week, and when the team wins, they're elated, and I think it's just way too much into people that they need to get out and they need to, you know, see what's more going on in the world than what's going on in the sports world. What if you replaced your uh, your sports uh, uh, Jones with Brian? What have I replaced it with? Yes. Um, I spent more time, you know, writing basically, investigating other things. I have another book actually I'm working on about uh, continuity government and national emergencies. Ah, getting into the old Camp FEMA end of things. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to talk to you about that. That's something we've discussed in the past. Who did you use? It's a thing that I've just taken sports, and I've just allowed it to be almost like like watching a movie because, you know, it's kind of the same thing. I'll, you know, allow myself two hours here or three hours there to watch a game, but I don't live my life by it. Most of the time, if I'm watching, actually, I'm trying to watch and see what I think might be fixed. Interesting. Like a lot of other people. Well, just very briefly, I mean, you talk about scripting the uh, the outcome and and uh, sort of prolonging prolonging the uh, the, the storyline in order to reap the, the profits. And you mentioned the uh, was it the two thousand and seven uh, NFL season with the uh, the Patriots, who have really become America's team, haven't they? Yeah, they've uh, they've stepped into that role. And all Although of those they're also hated. They're also they're. They've become that dynasty with or either it's a love-hate relationship a lot of people have with them. But in terms of, uh, of you know, uh, really cashing in on the ratings and uh, was it those four consecutive uh, sort of late-game heroics and come-from-behind wins by the Patriots? Well, that season, that was the season they almost went undefeated. They got into the Super Bowl but lost to the Giants. And it's interesting, in the regular season, I believe it was week nine, they played the Colts. And both teams at the time were undefeated, so one of them had to remain undefeated. And it happened to be the Patriots won by, like, I think three or four points. And for the rest of the season, the Patriots only played three more close contests. All of them happened to be primetime games. One of them was Monday Night Football, one of them was Sunday Night Football. Then the final game of the season was unprecedented in NFL history. It wound up being broadcast on three networks simultaneously, which is, hasn't been done since Super Bowl One. And those three games, the Patriots all, I believe, were all come from behind victories, and they all won by, like, less than four points. Meanwhile, in the other games that they played that season, the other, um, would be 12 games, they set a scoring record 
where I think they won those 12 games by like 300 points combined and were the highest-scoring team in NFL history that year. But yet those four primetime games or three primetime games and the one game with the Colts that was a nationally televised games were all nail-biters. And at the same time, ratings went through the roof, and CBS, which broadcasts most of the other games, was making money hand over fist because they started upping their uh, advertising fees during those games. Brian, finally, what can you tell us about uh, um, sports card collection? I mean, I, I, I think we all are aware now that it's gone from just being a hobby to big business. Although a few years ago, I'm told, sort of the, the whole floor fell out of the market. But what is the, what is the status of, of card collecting now, and, uh, and what can you tell us about what you call the card collecting con? Well, I think the biggest thing that's got into sports card collecting is the jersey cards where they put little swatches of uh, the players' jerseys in the cards and they put autographs on the cards now. And um, a lot of that material, I believe, can be questioned as to whether it's truly authentic or not. Because all the, for like a company like Upper Deck, which produces some of the cards, they put a guarantee on the back of the card that supposedly the uh, autograph's authentic, yet their authentication process isn't really that authentic. Basically what they do is they send the cards to the player and the player sends them back to the company. Meanwhile, nobody knows who really signed those cards. It could be the player, it could be the player's wife, it could be the player's kid, it could be who knows who signed the cards. But they say they're authentic. And the same thing with jersey swatches and cards. They say that they're taken from authentically game-worn jerseys, but I've found out from talking to some of the guys who work for these card companies that they buy jerseys from dealers who deal with um, game-worn jerseys. And a lot of that stuff is, is fake. I mean, it's just flat-out fake because there's not that many actual game-worn jerseys in existence. Hmm. Listen, Brian, this was uh, fascinating. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. And uh, as I've suggested to a number of my guests recently who have uh, produced some in pretty inflammatory uh let's say dangerous work uh, keep your head down uh, stay safe uh you're a brave man for taking on uh, the professional sports world and uh but as as i've also said you know they have um billions and billions of dollars at their disposal we only have the truth so they don't stand a chance brian that's what i hope <laughs> okay thank you the fix is in the showbiz manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. And the website again, Brian? Is thefixisin.net. Okay, listen, uh, send me a line when you, uh, you've uh, finished your work on the continuity of government and uh, emergency preparedness. And, uh, oh, we'll, I will do. We'll get you back on. Great, I appreciate it. All right, Brian Tui. All right, listen, now to the top of the hour, open lines. If you've got a spine-tingling tale... Some encounter with the paranormal, supernatural, a UFO, perhaps something just plain weird and high strangeness. Always welcome. If you'd like to talk about uh, the preceding 90 minutes and you didn't get on board to comment, we'd love to, your, to, to hear your uh, call as well. Or anything else of a conspiratorial nature. After all, it is The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Richard Serrett.
Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Would love to hear your spine-tingling tales while time allows. One night, we're going to go pillar to post with the spine-tinglers. Just you, me, and the telephone. No guests. I'll just uh, take your um, your stories of high strangeness and uh, frightening encounters with things that go bump in the night. Always, uh, I always contend that uh, I have the, the the greatest callers in anywhere in talk radio, and some of the most unbelievable stories I've ever heard uh, take place on the air when we uh, when we do this segment, spine tingling tales. So we can do some of that now while Tom permits. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty and one eight six six seven forty four seven forty eight six six seven forty four seven forty. I wanted to mention uh, just about a year ago, a couple of young filmmakers by the name of Brian Law and Dan Dix, they're with an organization called Press for Truth, uh, came by my house up in Onionville with camera equipment in tow, and uh, wanted to interview me for a, a documentary they were working on about uh, the North American Union. Well, lo and behold, it is uh, finished, and it is about to be released theatrically. It's called United We Fall. Again, it's a film that explores the uh, agenda for North American Union and a one-world government. And um, we're going to be presenting that film. I say we, myself, and his name keeps popping up in this show, but he's just, he's a whirlwind of activity. Patrick White from Conspiracy Culture. Um is going to be screening. It'll be the theatrical premiere of United We Fall, featuring yours truly and uh, just a bevy of uh, great uh, researchers and uh, and speakers, Ron Paul and uh, many, many other people about North American Union. Anyway, it's going to be screened on Saturday, uh, Friday, Friday, June the 18th. Friday, June 18th at the Bloor Cinema here in Toronto, 506 Bloor Street West. And uh, again, presented by myself and Patrick White of Conspiracy Culture. And usually you can buy tickets at the door night of, or you can order them through Conspiracy Culture. Just go on uh, online, conspiracyculture.com. If you go to my website, richardserrett.com, on the homepage, just scroll down and uh, you'll see... Sarat featured a new documentary on North American Union, and then you can click on uh, a button there to view the trailer. It's quite well done, actually. United We Fall by uh, Brian Law and Dan Dix. Coming to the Bloor Cinema June the 18th, I'll be presenting along with Patrick White, and I'm also uh, featured in the documentary. And one more thing. I, um, I've been doing uh, or appearing on camera... Uh, a number of episodes for a new television series that's going to be uh, airing sometime in the fall. I think September. It's on Animal Animal Planet, which is owned by Discovery. And it's called Freak Encounters. So they've got uh, me on uh, camera talking about uh, werewolves. And this past week I taped a couple of episodes, one on the Mothman and uh, one on Saurians, which uh, uh, are lizard people. 
So it's a great way to make a living. What can I say? Talking about werewolves. Anyway, so look for that Freak Encounters on Animal Planet this fall, and uh, I'll be featured in a a number of those episodes. And I think I mentioned... uh, that I'll be flying down to Washington for the X conference in early May to uh, to begin filming a uh, documentary my partners and I are working on on UFO disclosure. All right, let's say hello to Hunter, who's located somewhere in South Central Ontario. Hello, Hunter. Good morning. Uh, Welcome. Good morning, uh, Richard. How are you? Uh, not too bad, Richard. Uh, I've had a question I've been wanting to ask you for some time. I was actually hoping I might meet you uh, in person sometime to ask you. I didn't really want to put you on the spot on over the radio, um, and the question is not meant to, you know, uh, corner you. Uh, but I, I've this kind of been perplexing for me since I started listening to you on the station. Um, and I don't know if there's other people thinking about this too, but uh, can you? sort of um, clarify for myself and anybody else that wonders the way I do, um, your, your Christian beliefs, um, they, they seem to, for some reason, they seem to um, conflict with um, uh, the, you know, the recognition of uh, paranormal uh, reality and uh, extraterrestrial reality, which to me seems more believable than a lot of the stuff that um, is, you know, pushed at the public through, uh, through re- religion, like particularly with the, you know, with the fact that, you know, in the last year this um, documentary came out about the pagan Christ where um, the uh, Christian religion essentially uh, stole all its uh, basic elements that it flogs to uh, its uh, its uh, peons. Um, okay, hold on, hold on. Let me just stop you there because it's only a two-hour show, and you've yeah, thrown a lot know, of things at I me. So let me just start. Let me dive in here with a couple of things. First yeah. of all, uh, first of all, uh, you're absolutely right that some of the, a lot of the things that I talk about in the show are um, in conflict with my uh, my yeah. belief system, and I've stated such. When I, whenever I talk about uh, uh, ETs, I've I've always uh, not necessarily in each and every time, but I've, 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 I generally try to make the point that um, my interpretation of the ET phenomenon uh, differs uh, from many in the uh, the UFO field or the disclosure movement because I, uh, sort of working within the framework of my belief system, I, I tend to believe that, uh, that a- aliens are not extraterrestrial, they're interdimensional, and they're probably demonic. So... That's how I I view the ET ET phenomena through the prism of my my uh, spirituality, and and in terms of uh, other paranormal uh, uh, topics like ghosts and everything, I've uh, it, it does conflict with my uh, my religion. But you know what? I, I'm not here to you know to preach. I mean, when when it's an appropriate time, I I, um, I talk about it. But uh, there are, there are those who genuinely believe that the dead come back and visit. But even within the Christian faith, for example, not too long ago, there was a Catholic, uh, uh, I don't know if he was a priest or where he, uh, at what level he was in the, in the clergy, but he wrote for one of the Catholic uh, uh, journals and, uh, and, and said, listen, it's, it, we, we, in the Christian world, we, we know about the uh, communing with saints, and saints are all, of course, in the, in the next world, in heaven. Or, or, and since we can, we can commune with saints, that does leave the door open for some sort of communication with, um, with the dead. But it, we, the, the, Catholic, or the, the, the Christian faith is pretty clear on one point, and that is that you do not try to conjure up 
uh, spirits. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of the so-called uh, Christ conspiracy, uh, let's be clear about one thing. Yeah. At the time of, of uh, you know, uh, Christ after, and after he died and we had the, you know, the, the, the apostles and the early Christians, they did not try and they did not for one minute dispute the fact that there were n- numerous parallels between the Christ's, uh, nar- the Christ narrative and um, other sort of parag- pagan narratives. In fact, they made a point of mentioning it to people to say, listen, you know, this isn't coming out of left field. The, th- the, the, the things that were happening during Christ's time, yes, there, there are parallels in, in uh, you know, in prior, in history. Yeah. So th- there was never any attempt to suggest that, that, uh, that um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, Osiris or, or uh, any of these other, uh, you know, pagan uh, gods uh, were not, uh, you know, crucified in a similar fashion or, or what have you. Uh, but, um, you know, as from my perspective, I, I think that this was done deliberately by, by the Son of God because he wanted this narrative to, to have some resonance with the people. And, and, and so they could say, well, yeah, this, this makes sense. We've seen this before. Well, it just makes it that much more difficult to, to you know, wrap your head around. Because, like, my, myself personally, I have had uh, one experience with extraterrestrials, mm-hmm. and I've also had uh, an experience with a, a spirit. And um, to me, uh, like what I saw with my own eyes and experience... Uh, seems more believable than something that, you know, apparently uh, somebody's gone back 4,500 years and, and stolen a story. And, no, 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 not and, stolen. And, Let's, hey, the, nobody stole anything. But, but you know, your, your experiences could still be very real, yeah. Hunter. But, yeah. but that doesn't mean, uh, for example, that there, what you witnessed was something other than what you, what you thought it was. For example, uh, you, you may have had a contact with... Uh, as some sort of an uh, uh, an alien, but who's to say that it wasn't interdimensional, not extraterrestrial? In terms of a spirit, perhaps you were being deceived. Well, I, no, I don't know. I mean, I, like I, like you said, it's only a two-hour show. But I yeah. mean, I was hoping that you know that you could try to help clarify because I mean, religion, you know, from the sidelines out here, kind of looks like something that the. Uh, the uh, um, the powers that be that govern the the herds of, of primates that are running around on this planet it just uses crowd control. Well, there is an element of that, no no question, uh, Hunter. Uh, I, I don't refer to us as primates. I don't believe in that. But that's another another show. <laughs> uh, here's the thing: okay. um, uh, Christianity is is not about a religion. It's about a person. It's one man, and he didn't come here to start a religion. And he didn't come here to give us a Bible. Uh, he came here to, to give us a church. Um, you know what? Well, uh, I, I really appreciate you, you calling in. I don't think you put me on the spot at all. Right. I, don't, I don't mind the, the comments. I welcome them. Okay. And uh, this is something that we can, uh, we can delve into uh, further if, uh, if there's interest out there to, and, and talk, about, uh, to talk about this at greater length on the show. Oh, great. I uh, really appreciate um, your addressing this, and I really do enjoy your work. So I appreciate thanks. it. Well, I hope I was able to clarify somewhat. I'm, well, <laughs> I'm hardly a spokesperson for, uh, for Greek Orthodoxy. I'm, well, I'm, no, I, 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 wanted, you know, I wanted it to come from your corner, you know, how, how you perceive it, and right. you know, how, how the, 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 the three different you know, uh, areas 
coincide, you know, that, you know, that you can uh, look at all three of them and, and, you know, say, yeah, there's a, you know, uh, a possibility of all these three, these three things, you know, existing, you know, it, together. And I don't know, I mean, it's just, it's just that, you know, up, up until recently, you know, religion has, uh, you know, really, uh, shied away from this ET stuff and now suddenly you know they're you know I don't know why if it's uh, you know um they need you know more revenue or something like that or they're trying to make themselves more accessible to the you know the guy on the street be, because of revenue uh that's what it looks like you Well know? You, I I don't know if you're alluding to the the fact that the the head of the um, uh, Vatican Observatory in Arizona uh, several years ago uh, announced that it was okay for Christians uh, to believe in ETs yeah. I I was uh, taken aback by that as well I'm not sure whether we're being prepared for something uh whether that's part of this big deception uh, I'm not really sure, although, um, uh, you know, I don't think that there's anything in the Bible that, that strictly, strictly, you know, uh, um, forbids uh, or, or uh, you know, excludes the possibility that there are uh, civilizations elsewhere in the universe. I think quite, quite the contrary. However, um, all great topics for, uh, for other shows, Hunter. I thank you for the call. Let's try to work Gordon in here from Oakville while time permits. Gordon, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Richard. Yeah, I thought I'd share a little story with you that kind of came at me from out of uh, nowhere. All right. <laughs> I did a book back in the late 70s on the First World War. I'd interviewed over 65 First War vets. And uh, back out west and a lot around here, Toronto, Oakville, and one of the vets was an old Highlander. And I'd go on average about three visits to the interviews and work on them and edit them into the uh, manuscript at the time. So we're talking about 1978 here, and it was middle of winter, and I was quite sick with a cold. You know how you get those bad colds, and you're in that delirious state. And I had been working on the manuscript that day, and I had been writing a segment on potato mashers being thrown into the trenches, and, you know, you, the classic thing, you throw it back. And so I had a nightmare that night that, Basically, I was in the trench. I was there, and I actually felt like everything was so real. I could see the, the very light go off over the trenches, and I could hear clatter of machine guns in the distance. Then I heard voices coming, and it scared me. I thought, are those Germans or are those, you know, my guys, the Canadians? And then a potato masher landed between my legs. I pulled it up, threw it back, an explosion went off, machine gun fire, and then right out of that I kind of woke up out of the dream but as I was waking up I heard a voice going goodbye laddie goodbye laddie and I thought wait a minute I know that voice and it was the voice of the veteran I'd been interviewing that I'd been working on his story and uh, the next morning I get a call from a buddy and he says yeah he says uh, I, I was just at the Legion and I heard one of your veterans died and it was I'm not naming his name obviously but they said that guy had died that very night. And I thought, whoa. <laughs> Gordon, that is a spine tingler, and I kid you not, I got the tingle up my up and down my spine. <laughs> Dan is nodding in the other room, too. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a wonderful uh, tale. I say tale, I don't mean that in any yeah. uh, you know a, a pejorative way. Uh, I, I believe yeah. you had the, that experience, and you told it well and convincingly. Thank you. Um, you know, do you, do you think... Uh, or do you suspect perhaps that that was a past life experience? 
Uh, no, I don't. Not no. at all. I, I think it just came out of the fact that I'd done so many interviews after talking to that many vets. At that point, I think I'd interviewed about 50 of them that I, I knew the subject so well. And then the classic uh, way that you get this bad, uh, delirious cold, and then it breaks. And right. I think it was just the timing. But at the same thing, it, it really struck me that what are the chances that a veteran that you... He, he obviously was lonely. His wife had already died. and He was reaching looked, out to you at his moment of death. Yes, and I firmly believe now that there's something definitely on the other side to go to. That's the way it struck me, and that, that you know, here it is. 30-some-odd years later, and I'll never forget it. <laughs> Gordon, that's a wonderful, wonderful story, and I thank you for sharing it. You're very welcome. Hope you'll call again. Yeah. Dan Ellison, thank you for your technical expertise and uh, wizardry on the audio board. Our thanks to Brian Tuey, author of The Fix is In. Next week, of course, we'll uh, speak with Stephen Bassett, founder of the Paradigm Research Group, executive director of the Paradigm Research Group, one of the world's foremost UFO disclosure advocates. He'll be organizing the X conference and Paula Harris, UFO investigative reporter, will be here. I hope you'll be here as well. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I speak in the dark, speak in the light and what you hear in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.